Haven't we, though? Yeah, and it gets, I wish I could say it gets easier, <laughs> but it doesn't. But with the rich and the poor, you know, that was challenging, and we're going to go through that again. Uh, as we look ahead, we'll go through it again in chapter 2 a little bit. And then, of course, as we, as we saw also, uh, chapter 5. What James means by rich and poor, he has a, a spiritual definition of that, doesn't he? One could be material, materially rich and still be counted amongst the poor, that is, the faithful. One could be materially poor and still be counted again amongst the rich, that is, those who serve mammon. So if that's all still uh, confusing, we'll go through it again in chapter 2. Verse, uh, we got through uh, verses 13, 14, 15, and that really helps us understand the nature of temptation, of what's called original sin, that is the desire within us. For example, um, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. That's a description of what we call original sin, that desire within us to do what's sinful. Um, theologians have noted this, of course, just secular people have noted this, that it's only that we're forbidden to do something that makes us really want to do it sometimes, right? Um, it's kind of like the, the kid that, um, this is the, you know, kind of the classic example we use, kind of stupid, but the... You know, the kid smells mom baking the chocolate chip cookies, smells the cookies, you know, they're good, everything else. He's not really tempted by anything. Now mom comes to him and says, now honey, I'm stepping outside. Whatever you do, please do not eat one of those freshly baked cookies that's on the rack and leaves. Right? That's temptation. Just that's that. terrible temptation, just saying that, right? Um, it's actually the, the law, um, do not eat these, and the expression of that law actually awakens in us a desire to do that very thing we're not supposed to do. Um, who are you to tell me not to do that is maybe the more mature thought. But it's that sin is uh, active and living within us. It has its own desires. It hates to be curtailed. Anyone that tells it, you know, can't do that, sin within us says, oh yeah, I can't, and I'm going to. Um, you really shouldn't have one more drink. That'll put you over the line. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, and I'm going to have three or four more past that, too. Um, that's, that's sin within us. It's unbridled. Um, concupiscence is the Latin phrase we use for that, and our Lutheran confessors use for that. And concupiscence has as its root word cupid. So it's, de it's that desire, it's that lust within us, not necessarily se sexual lust, but lust within us to do the thing we're not supposed to do. I don't suppose any of you have ever noticed that in yourself. I certainly, I certainly haven't, and that's no. <laughs> yeah, it's in all of us, James says. I mean, it's even in James himself, leader of the church in Jerusalem. Um, so then he talks about, well, when you have that desire, you want to nip that desire in the bud because it's better to confess the original sin, desire, than to have to confess that plus the manifestation, the actual sin. We, we've seen this in Genesis as we've looked very closely at the account of the temptation and the eating, that the desire to eat the fruit preceded eating the fruit, right? The desire, the original sin kind of sunk in and manifested itself in the actual sin of biting the fruit. All one unit, all one sin, but two different facets of it, right? Original sin and actual sin. Then, uh, so then uh, James just continues the thought of 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there's sexual imagery, and then there's imagery of giving birth, and that sin has a life of its own, and then it brings the sinner to death. All right. Not an easy section to translate right off the bat. These next two, well, verse 17. But verse 16 first, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Okay, that's easy. Here's a challenging verse. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now note this next verse is the context. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Who's he? The Father of Lights, 
the Father of lights, brought us forth by the word of truth. Who might that be? Jesus, who is the word, the word that was with God, the word that was God. And he also says of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. So the word of truth ought to have our ears ringing that this is a possible reference to Christ. And of course, to the message of the gospel. But that's who Christ is and what Christ is. Then, then here's the purpose statement that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, now, why did I say that verse 17 is challenging? Because look at verse 18, how it is talking of his own will, he brought us forth. It's talking about the Father of lights, by the word of truth, which is talking about the gospel that is Christ Jesus himself. We've got the Father, we've got the Son, that we should be a kind of first fruits. We're talking about spiritual things, profoundly uh, godly things, things to do with Christ and salvation and making us first fruits. Now, why verse 17 is a difficult, difficult translation is because it's jarring if you look at it in context. The way it's translated in English is every good gift and every perfect gift. And the way that I think we take this in English is to say, well, God gives a lot of good stuff. So every good gift that God gives and every perfect gift that God gives but look at this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of ch or due to change. So it looks as if this statement is saying, God gives man a lot of good stuff, right? And then it, and then it says in 18, of his own will, God brought us forth by Christ, by the word of truth, by the gospel, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It's kind of jarring. And it's led people to wonder if there might not be a better way of translating verse 17 that makes it fit the context a little bit more, okay? More than just making James say, well, God's a good guy and gives good stuff. So, if, if, in, if you look at Greek, in the Greek, at the language that's used for every, see, every good gift, or every perfect gift, that word every can also be translated as uh, whole, entire, or holy in the sense of W-H, right? So um, it can also be translated as the whole good gift or the whole perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights whom there, with whom there is no variation or shadow doing to change, due to change. And now look at how that fits. If you think of this as the whole good gift and the whole perfect gift that is from above, who comes down from above? Christ, Christ Jesus, is the one who comes down from above. Um, he descends from heaven. He's incarnate of the Virgin Mary. He is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now, if you look at the Greek words for from above, that phrase, and uh, uh, coming down, these are, these are words that are very, very often in the New Testament used for Christ. So it might tip us off that James might have in mind here Christ and not just good stuff. So if we interpret it this way, and if we allow the Greek its natural flexibility, then I want you to see if 17 doesn't flow better with 18. All right? Every or the whole good gift, the whole good gift who is Christ, and the whole perfect gift who is Christ, who is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of the Father of lights' own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that is, by Christ, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, doesn't that reading of verse 17 seem to fit the context a little better? So, if you don't, if you don't think so, you're free to interpret this verse as saying, God gives everybody good stuff. And the most important good thing he gives, verse 18, is the word of truth that makes us first fruits. Okay? That's the, that's the uh, consensus. That's the view. That's the majority view. That's how most interpreters throughout the history of the church have taken this, these two verses. But there is, if you look just strictly at the Greek grammar and interpret according to context, you can just as easily make the interpretation in the case that James is saying, 
the whole good gift, the whole perfect gift is from above. That would namely be Christ coming down from the Father of lights, who all of a sudden makes sense because Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Now all of a sudden that really makes sense. Because otherwise, why does he call him the Father of lights? Which is fascinating because where, in, where else in Scripture does it talk about him being the Father of lights? It's not a common expression at all. So that Christ Jesus is the light of the world. And, uh, but also Jesus says of us, that we are the light of the world. And doesn't that fit with exactly 18? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, you see here a reflection of other biblical teaching, of other apostolic teaching, a teaching of Jesus himself, that he is the light of the world, and yet he causes us to be lights as well. Another way of putting it would be he is the sun, and he causes us also to be sons. He is the light and he causes us to be light. So the father of all lights means, first and foremost, the father of Christ, the light of the world, but also our father, as we are the lights, as the light of Christ is in us. Does that make sense? So it's a deeper Christological reading. And I think it's more faithful to James' actual intention of what he's actually getting here. So I prefer personally the reading of all uh, or the whole good gift and the whole perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, um, I prefer the, the Christological, Christ-centered reading. But if you prefer to read it uh, superficially, as it's given to us in the English, and it sums up as God gives good stuff, and he gives his word, and he makes us his creatures, well, that's fine too. Um, in interpretation... In matters of interpretation, as long as it doesn't affect doctrine, we're free to have differences in interpretation. You know, that's why one pastor can preach a sermon and it's totally different than another pastor preaching a total sermon. And at the end of it, you still say, well, they both had different interpretations, but in the end, did they say anything different? No. They both still confess the Christian faith rightly. So we're free in matters of interpretation to disagree as long as the interpretation doesn't affect actual doctrine and substance of God's word. Does that make sense? Okay, well, if we read that the way we've read the rest of chapter 1, then we find that at the center of chapter 1 is the person and work of Jesus, over and over. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our spiritual poverty, and uh, in the midst of temptation, and in the midst of God's good gifts toward us, we find Jesus in all of it. Any questions on, on that section of uh, chapter 1, that first half? Uh, I guess I, I was just wondering, <coughs> excuse me, uh, does that mean every good idea, and some are very good, that comes into my head, do I know for sure that's from God? Or, or don't I? I mean, if yeah yeah though I mean the way to think about that I think is uh, that God of course gives us uh, our reason and our senses and all that we have mental capacity all of that and we give thanks to God the creator who's given those things to us right mm-hmm. and um if we want to, though, go further than that and say, you know, um, that's where that thought, I think, begins and ends. That's its boundary. God gives us good thoughts. Let's leave it there. Because what the next step is, is people go too far with it. Mm-hmm. God told me yeah. to tell you, right? Mm-hmm. So then the thought becomes not my thought, but God's thought in me. Now, if God tells me to tell you, then who's actually telling you? God. So you better listen to me because it's actually God talking. That's kind of blasphemous, actually, isn't it? Unless you're quoting scripture. Unless you're quoting scripture. <laughs> exactly. This is where I'm sure you're quoting scripture. Well said. This is where sola scriptura, that old stuffy principle that we Lutherans put on our coffee mugs, is actually about everyday life. Because if someone says, Thus saith the Lord, you should say, Okay, where? Right? 
or what they're saying is in harmony with the word of the Lord, right? Test the spirits against the word of God. But if someone says, God has put this on my heart to tell you, or God wants you to do this, or God has revealed it to me that we must do this, alarms ought to be going off in your head, unless what follows next is what the scriptures say. Yeah. Or in harmony, right? Yeah, or in harmony, okay. yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, in harmony. It doesn't have to be word for word, obviously. It has to be the same with what the scriptures say. No more and no less, you know. And this, this of course, in the history of the church um, was dealt with very early with Montanism is what it's called. There's a guy named Montanus, and he claimed to be a Christian, but he was one of the first, I believe he's second century, and he was one of the first that claimed, well, the apostles knew a lot. And, uh, and good stuff, and they wrote it all down. But God has continued his revelation through me. Let me tell you what else God has to say to you. And then inevitably what followed was not in keeping with the scriptures. <laughs> so, the, so the early church at that point, though they didn't come out with the credo, sola scriptura, that's how they judged it. They said, look, the apostolic scriptures, if you're going to go, if you're going to say more than them or less than them, then you're outside of the church. You're outside of the Christian faith. Does that make sense? So even back in the second century, they were doing exactly what Luther ended up doing in the 16th century. By saying, look, you can claim to be the Pope, and you can claim to be seated on God's throne in the church, and you can claim that everything you speak is infallible, but if you say anything less or anything more than the scriptures, we don't listen to you. Yeah, sure, there's another. Yeah, well, there's the angel of light that told him, right? And Paul says, even if an angel of light tells you another gospel, let him be... Anathema, cursed, condemned. Yeah. So Joseph Smith fulfilled Paul's words, didn't he? Yeah. Okay. So you know that's why that's why too. I don't think I don't think it's likely that James is just kind of putting this generic thing out there of like all good things come from God. Probably more likely he's talking about the whole good gift, the whole perfect gift, namely Christ, and with Christ all His blessings and benefits to us. Pastor, is the, um, verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Is that referring to baptism? Great. Um, great question. This birth motif um, is given in John's gospel in two different ways. Um, one is with baptism and one is simply through the word. Uh, so if we look at James, uh, or excuse me, John, it's right in the beginning of John's gospel. Let me just take me a second here to find it. But in Scripture, baptism and the Word, baptism and faith, always go together. That's why Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And it's the mark of a false teacher to try to pit baptism in faith or baptism in the word against one another. The word does it, not baptism. Or faith does it, not baptism. Um, mm-hmm. Scripture puts two together always. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Um, let me see. Sorry, I've got my Bible that's not all marked up. And my other one, I've got it marked up with giant arrows pointed at it and everything else. Um, but do you see where he says, uh, become children of God? I think it's chapter 1, verse 12 around there. Um, exactly. Exactly right. So look at this. Here you have a new birth described by John in the way of faith, right? Uh, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name faith he gave the right to become children of God which is saying he essentially made them children of God okay who were born uh, born as it were spiritually right new birth not of blood that's saying not in the usual fleshly way okay Um, that's a birth of blood nor of the will of the flesh which sort of ruins out ruins uh Decision theology rules out decision theology, doesn't it? Because to be born of God is not to be born of, of the will of the flesh. It's not a matter of your choice or anyone else's choice, right? Uh, nor of the will of man, and that seems to be an alternate expression of the same idea. In other words, John trying to get it through our head. 
but of God. So it's possible, too, that not of the blood nor of the will of the flesh would be a matter of natural birth, nor of the will of man would be like the higher capacity, the choice in man, but of God. So look at the statement all, all together again. All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, God is the one that gave them new birth. God is the one that gave them to believe in his name and to receive him. Does that make sense? Okay, now while that's true and John teaches us that, go to John chapter 3. And look what Jesus teaches uh, Nicodemus and the church. If you look at uh, verse 3 of chapter 3, Jesus answers Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so now look, that's a parallel statement. The first statement of Jesus in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see, to be born again is to be born of water and the Spirit. You must be born of water and the Spirit in order to see the kingdom of God, in order to enter the kingdom of God. So this one new birth consisting of water and Spirit is most clearly baptism. So baptism is new birth. So look what the scriptures teach. Look what John teaches us, the apostle of Jesus. In Within three chapters, very short uh, amount of space, he said you're born again by faith and you're born again by baptism. Now, think how poisonous it is when people say, well, you're born again by baptism and not by faith. Well, who teaches that? Roman Catholicism. Medieval Roman Catholicism. Ex opera operato, by the working of the work itself. It doesn't matter if the person has faith. Baptism is the magical charm that saves you. Lutherans say, no way. You have to have faith. Okay? Or, think of the opposite. Um, you have to be born again of faith, but born again of water baptism doesn't matter at all. Who teaches that? like most of evangelicalism. Okay? And that's also wrong. Scripture holds the two together. To be born again by faith, to be born again by water and the Spirit. Faith and baptism always go together. Who else has told us that? Jesus. Whoever believes faith and is baptized, baptism will be saved. Right? So scripturally, biblically, uh, belief and baptism are being born again, and they're both essential. And it's, as Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So as we look back then on uh, James and what he says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. How does that jive with what uh, John taught us in chapter 1? It's not by the will of flesh, nor by the will of man, but James, of his own will, he brought us forth. You see, in salvation, it's an act of God's will, not an act of our will. That's made clear by John. That's made clear by James. He brought us forth, and that bringing forth is the idea of birth. Brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, or firstborn, first fruits of the womb, firstborn of his creatures. Now, something fascinating is the parallel between this section and the section that is preceded. Because in the section that's preceding, he has taught us the uh, sexual imagery of sin, right? That, sin, that desire, when it is tempted, conceives and gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now look what has happened. Down here, it's, you have the, a parallel description, only it's the opposite description, not of desire and sin but of God bringing us forth through Christ and conceiving or bringing us forth by the word of truth so that we are first fruits or first born of his creatures does that make sense so the so whereas the product is of the first analogy is sin and death the product of this verse is 
being born to eternal life, that is, being the first fruits of his creatures. Does that make sense? So there's some parallelism that James has worked in there. Uh, and you can see, too, then, how thoughtful he is about writing this epistle. How he, you know, sometimes we get this idea that people just, uh, that they just wrote their epistles without thinking about them, without plotting them out, without weaving together concepts, without doing beautiful uh, parallelism and poetry and uh, literary, uh, different literary usages and dynamics. The scriptures, if you, the more you study them, the more you'll realize how thought out, how beautiful, how artistic they are in many places. And James' epistle is no exception. Okay, so did I answer the question about the idea of being brought forth, uh, being born, um, being a matter of faith? So by the word of truth, that's by Christ. Yes, by his gospel, by his word that creates faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. But also by that new birth um, that's given to us by water and the Spirit, as Jesus teaches, which is baptism. All right. Well, to James, there is more than meets the eye. So, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Now, here is, here is one of the verses, and I said I'd point this out, where a lot of ink gets spilled arguing over whether or not this epistle is written chiefly to pastors or to the church in general. Now, even those epistles that are written to pastors still have general application to the church. First and Second Timothy, Titus, right? Um, those are written to pastors, but they have application to the church. Here's why uh, some speculate that James may have been written foremost to pastors, and there's a lot of argument about it. Know this, my beloved brothers. Are brothers Christians or are brothers pastors? That's the question. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to Speak, And I believe the Greek word there, I'm not looking at it, but I believe it's laleo, which is often a technical term for preaching. In other words, if this is pastors, um, let every person be quick to hear, slow to preach. That the word preaching would be a tip-off, that brothers here means pastors. And the idea would be, you know, to, to cut through it and, and communicate it, would be um, listen to the word of God more than you attempt to speak it. So in other words, it would be an admonition to be steeped in the word of God, to listen to the word of God, to let his word have its way with you, and then to speak. But to be slow to speak, rather than to just blurt out whatever and anything that's in your head without paying attention to God's word, without listening and hearing his word. Then the admonition, slow to anger, slow to wrath, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, if you're a preacher, this is telling you, look, your main task is not to be a preacher of wrath, of anger, or of the law. That's part of it. Christ commissions us to preach repentance, but that's not the chief end. To preach repentance, he says, but also the remission of sins to all nations in my name. So be slow to anger, slow to... Uh, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The wrath or anger of a preacher does not make righteous people, right? Um, the fire and brimstone pastor, the man who beats his Bible and says, now you all behave, does that produce righteousness? No. What produces the righteousness of God? The gospel. Now the, no man shall be justified by the works of the law, um, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law has been revealed, namely Christ Jesus, summing up what Paul teaches us in Romans. So the idea then would be to realize that what produces the righteousness of God is the preaching of the gospel. Okay? Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which would be saying, get back on track, and receive the implanted word, the word that God has sown in your ear, which is able to save your souls. Um, interesting that it's in the plural. Which is able to save your souls, the souls that God has given you charge over. So that's the way that that uh, is read if you read this with pastors in mind, okay? Which uh, some people take to be the way this ought to be read. Now, even if that's true, is there still a general application to Christians? Well, absolutely. 
if the pastors are entirely excluded, and James just means to say this to Christians, well, then it's obvious enough that he's asking us to be uh, quick to hear, quick to listen, and slow to speak, slow to be wrathful toward one another or full of anger. Uh, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, we ought not be bitter or angry with one another, even when we have been sinned against. And then the admonition, put away all fil filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness or humility the implanted word. And again, this implanted word is reminiscent of which of Jesus' parables? The sower of the seed, yeah, that he is the planter, the sower of the seed. So to receive the seed, the word that Christ implants in us, which is able to save your souls. In that sense, it would be general. It would let's all receive the implanted word, the seed, the gospel of Jesus, which is able to save our souls passively. Like we're receiving that word, we're being saved. So that would be the uh, other possible reading or the more general reading of that. Questions or comments on that section? Straightforward enough? Easier said than done, though, isn't it? Um, James is going to get to that when he talks about the wickedness of the tongue. You remember that section? Yeah. Uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to be slow to speak and quick to hear. It's against our nature. And it's hard to be slow to anger. That's against our nature, isn't it? Yeah, we tend to, we tend to by nature be impatient, meet sins against us with anger, and not uh, long-suffering or patience or forgiveness, but rather anger and wrath and revenge. Um, so James is pointing out what is natural to us and encouraging us to be what Christ has given us in the implanted word. All right, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Okay, James doesn't want hypocritical hearers who nod and who bless God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him, who listen to his word but don't dare put it into practice. Be not, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. Okay. So get the picture first. So the, you look in the mirror, you see who you are, and then you forget who you are as you go away. So that would be kind of an idiotic thing to do, right? No one would do that. So also, don't be a hearer of the word and not a doer. Being a hearer of the word is like being someone, like seeing your face. And uh, if you go away and forget what your face looked like, right? That's the same as being, hearing the word of God, but then not doing it, forgetting it and not doing it. Uh, if you see your face in the mirror and then forget what you look like, you're going to act not as who you are. If you hear the word of God but don't do it, you're going to act in a way that you are not. Right? Um, in other words, your identity, your image in the mirror is God's word. Who, what God says, right? That's your identity. That's who you are. You're baptized. You're his child. His word is you. Uh, his will is you. This is everything. And then if you walk away from what you see, if you walk away from your image, if you walk away from his word, or you do not do it, you're a hearer only, well, then you've forgotten your very identity. Does that make sense? Lutherans have always re also reflected on this, too, with the idea of a mirror, that God's law is like a mirror that shows us who we are in Christ Jesus, who we're supposed to be. And if we're a hearer of that, and we walk away from that, and don't try to do it, then we're foolish. And we've, made and we've deceived ourselves, in the words of James. So we want to be hearers, uh, but doers also. We want to look at our face in the mirror, know who we are in accordance with God's word, and then go out likewise uh, and act in this world as likewise. Um, I guess there, yeah, yeah, maybe so, Barry. Thank you so much. Um, family was respect the, your family name 
you know, what, you're being watched, you know, whatever you do, you know, and so forth. And I see the teaching was at the earthly level, and it should have been, you know, this would be so consistent because, you know, oh, if you do something and everybody in town is watching you. And yes. My town had the four generations in every home. and. Mm-hmm. Don't defame the Vaniel family name. Mm-hmm. It should have been. Uh, maybe that's where it was rooted in that in this truth, but it kind of was brought down to the family. That's wonderful. It's great. That's been lost, hasn't it? And it's I, been lost because yeah, we dispersed. People go into exactly. another state, then they get a divorce. There were no divorces then. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was mainly a Catholic town, but. Uh, I mean, they they didn't divorce because it would hurt the name. Yeah, you bring you shame the family name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's uh, I think that that's a good thing. I think that God, that's something that God has given us and written into us, and that's part of our civil righteousness. And it's great for parents to teach their kids that way. Um, and it's reflective of the deeper reality, yeah. um, the reality where uh, we pray in the Lord's uh, prayer. Um, Sorry, my ears are just over there dancing with that uh, drill or whatever. So is my mind. Um, where we pray, uh, hallowed be thy name. Because in baptism, God has written his name amongst, uh, among us, on us, right? Um, we are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We bear his name. We're Christians. Um, hopefully everyone knows we're Christians eventually and when we pray hallowed be our, thy name we're praying that God's name would be kept holy among us I mean his name's always holy in itself right um, I mean you can take a diamond and plunge it into mud and it's still a diamond you'd still want it you can take God's name and run it through the muck and it's still God's name it's still holy and perfect you can't unholy God's name but when we pray hallowed be thy name or or uh, let us uh, make your name holy among us. We're praying that his name would be kept holy. And it's the same idea. So that we uh, teach faithfully to his word and live faithfully to his word so that we don't bring shame upon his name. And that's the great tragedy. You know, it's not so much that false teachers, I don't know, their lies are dangerous in itself, but the, the real problem, the real deadly thing is that people walk away thinking that's what Christianity is. And they walk away inoculated from the truth and they won't even hear of it anymore. Why? Because all their teaching was done in the name of Christ, in the name of God. Uh, that's what, I think that that's what irks us so much about false teachers is, you know, if you just went out and peddled your nonsense, just peddle it. But then no one would listen to you. So how do you have to get people to listen to you? You say, oh, it's in the name of God. Oh, it's in the name of Christ. Oh, I'm a pastor. Okay, now people have listened to you. But by using the name of Christ and the name of God and teaching them falsely, you've also inoculated them to the real Christ and the real God. You've brought shame upon his name so that when they see the name of Christ and God, they just see the shame that that you've smattered upon it. They don't see who he really is. And that's the danger. So that's why we pray, hallowed be thy name. And we realize that one of the great motivations for us believing and teaching faithfully and living faithfully um, is so that we don't bring shame upon his name and thereby keep others from seeing who he really is and what his family really is about. Yeah, so thank you for that. That's a wonderful reflection. Follow-up question. Uh, Aren't we promised to get a new name? Is that in Revelation? That's in Revelation, which no one else knows. No one knows it, right? Yeah, right. Because what? Our old name was... So all this working of giving the proper name to our babies is... is I mean, it's a temporary labeling, I guess. But I, I suspect we'll retain those names even in... Have, uh, but I, have an added An addition, to. yeah. Okay. Um, what that is is a mystery. Okay. The scriptures don't say. and A lot of people uh, wax baptismally about that, that the name that uh, we'll receive is the name of God. And, but then, but then the, script, the problem with that is the scriptures say no one will know what it is. So if we've just said it's the name of God in baptism, well, then we do know what it is. So I kind of I lean away from the baptismal reading of that text, and I actually say, no, let it stand on its own. Let it just be a mystery. We don't know what that entails, but it will be given a new name of which uh, we don't know. Um, it's clear a name is very important and it's the it contains the essence, the character of who we are, who God is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, I think it's I think I mean it's probably a relief if your parents named you something like Arangelo or something like that. 
you know, because mom didn't know what to name you, and she's sitting at her bed, and she looks and says, orange jello, oh, yeah, orangelo, uh, names you that, and it's kind of, I mean, there's people, with, there's people who are bequeathed very silly or worthless names to their parents, right? It's probably a great gospel to know that God will give you a new name in heaven. Um, but, you know, we retain our names and our identities, too, uh, because Moses and Elijah, uh, when they return on the Mount of Transfiguration, are still Moses and Elijah. So even when we die, we retain our name and our identity. But God gives us a new one. That's the promise. And I like, you know, it's possible that that has some hidden interpretive meaning that we could figure out. But the text doesn't seem to say that. The text seems to say no one knows what it is. So I like to hold that as a mystery that will be revealed to us uh, probably in heaven. Leave it at that. Okay, so, uh, yeah, we want to honor God's name, and how we honor God's name is not by being hearers of the word, but by doers also, uh, of it also. Otherwise, we end up uh, potentially bringing shame upon his name and the family name, and that's, what hap- that's what's happened. I mean, that's, so, so many people hate Christians and hate the church, rightly, because the Christians in the church that they've run up against aren't faithful to God's name or his family. Um, they're guilty of shaming it. So when people hate that, I'm I'm on board. Great, I hate it too. You know. All right. Um, Isn't it kind of ironic that if you're not doing God's word, that um, what you want to do is hear it more, because that's what produces the good works, right? That's true. Good Isn't point. That kind of ironic. Good point. Yeah, you're right, and and it's ironic that he's telling us not to be doers of the, uh, not to be uh, hearers of the word, but doers also. And so in order to become doers, we are doing what? Hearing his word. <laughs> right, We're exactly. Not doing it. We need to hear it more. You're exactly right. In the past, I've thought to myself, well, I'm not doing it, so I'm just going to do what I know already. I'm not going to read anymore. I'm just going to try to do it, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a to-do list, you know, like I'm going to take it into my own power and I'm just going to do it. But really what I needed to do was read it a lot more so that it would produce it in mm-hmm. me. Great. Absolutely right, yeah. To produce fruit, if for the branch to produce the fruit, it needs to do what? Abide in the vine. Dwell in the vine. That's the key, right? If you want to produce fruit, you don't set out to produce fruit. You set out to abide in the vine. Then fruit will be produced. That's the essence of Jesus' teaching there. Yeah, so that's very well said. We want to dwell in the word of God richly, let it have its way with us. And then when it calls us to action, uh, we want to be faithful and be doers, you know. Um, my prayer is often that God would even give me his word to guide me in the way that I should go because you know our sinful state's so wretched we don't even see it until it's too late have you done that where you're like you know you do something really stupid that you thought was wise and it's only later on that you realize there's a specific word of God that would have dealt with that situation that would have told you which way to go but you were too dense and too unfaithful to even care to think about it yeah well that happens to me all the time. So I pray that God would you know, even give me the word and the opportunity to do what's right. And then once I see it, to actually have the courage and faithfulness to do it. Right? That's like the second step. Um, so anyway, I think that uh, all of that's part of being doers of the word, not hearers only. All right. Jo- uh, James gives us an example in 26 of kind of what he's talking about. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Well, can anyone entirely bridle their tongue? I don't know. James has something to say about that later, and it's not altogether positive for most of us. Um, But bridling the tongue... Here, if we think about what he's actually getting at in this verse, if anyone thinks he is religious, okay, so you're starting out with the, with the mindset of, I'm religious. I'm a good, upstanding Christian, okay? Then he says, but if you don't bridle your tongue, you deceive your own heart. Uh-oh. You see, James is working on, I mean, he's preaching the law in a way that really gets into our hearts and our minds, and you kind of say, well, I'd like to think I'm religious, but boy, I don't bridle my tongue. Therefore, I must deceive my own heart. Therefore, my religion must be worthless. All of this is James' way of leading us through the paradigm of the law and taking us in the way of the law to see how insufficient we are. Now, the law also guides us, and so James is going to use the law to guide us. 
But as that law condemns us, we recognize once again our need for the Savior. And we don't read this in, ex in, uh, we don't read this in isolation. We read this in the context of the whole epistle where he's constantly shown us Christ, shown us Christ, shown us our sin. Where should we go? To the word of Christ that we heard before. Um, but yeah, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless, completely worthless. So there's a condemnation. Now James obviously has people in mind, but you know, because that's the law, it probably accuses all of our hearts in some sense. Then he puts forward religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now there again the law may fall heavy on us and accuse us, but look, the law is also setting out positively um, what it is that we have to do, um, or what it is that, that we do in, in faithfulness to God's word. We all need to find the nearest orphan shelter and immediately locate the widow nearest to you and visit them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, here we go. Um, okay, I don't want to take away from that, but I want, I want you to see that what James has in mind, uh, throughout the Old Testament places in Scripture, God talks about his love for orphans and widows. Why? What's the status of orphans and widows? They're helpless. They're weak. Yeah. Orphans are, have no father and mother, right? And they need visitation to know that God is their father. Um, widows have no husband, right? Or no wife. They need to come and have, the, have Christ be given to them, visit them with the word of Christ so that they know that they have a bridegroom in Christ Jesus, one who loves them and weds them, himself to them so that all that he does is for them. So we're to visit you know, orphans and widows, yes, because they're the embodiment of those who are weak, those who need help, those who need the word of God in Christ Jesus. So James isn't just calling us uh, strictly to orphans and widows. Um, to them, yes, but to all who are in need of help. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so religion is, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit those who are weak and in need of help and who are suffering, and then to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, why is religion that is pure looking out for those who are weak and helpless? Because that's who God the Father himself is. He looks out for those who are weak and helpless. For sinners, yes. For you and I, yes. Also for those uh, who are poor in the world, who are lowly in the world, these are the ones who God looks out for. So religion is pure when we imitate the Father, when we imitate his care and his love, that he sees the world profoundly differently than we do. You know, Who are the important people to us? Well, the president and the people on TV and the government and the rulers and the authorities, those are the people who are very important, right? God's looking somewhere else. God's looking at orphans and widows and people like them who are lowly and poor and down and out and little and despised. So if you want to have pure religion, if you want to have a heart like the Father, where ought your attention be? The same place his is, right? So that's what James is calling us to, is to have a heart after the Father's heart, to look, at the, to look at the world and the people of the world the way God looks at the world, not the way human beings look at the world. Human beings look at the world uh, and uh, look at the powerful, important people, the rich people, and um, worship them and show concern for them. Okay. I was going to say, does that tie into the verse in Matthew where Jesus says... Uh, when I was in prison, you didn't visit me when I was... Yeah, exactly. So he's, in the, that verse, he's saying, I am the poor, I am the widow, I am the orphan, and you didn't show attention to me. Yeah, that's the condemnation of the wicked. and The wicked, of course, are those who reject Christ Jesus and his forgiveness, and then they're condemned along the lines of their lack of mercy, their lack of love, their lack of humanity. Um, and that's... That's not talking about the believer, then. No. Okay. Uh, no, the believers in, the, in, that, in that story that Jesus tells, which is a depiction of the reality of the judgment, if you remember, he separates, the very first thing that happens is the sheep and the goats are separated. It is the unbelievers and the believers are separated. Now what he says to the believers is, uh, when I was all these things, you did them to me, right? 
And their response is, when did we do these things to you, right? You did it whenever you did it to the least of these, my brethren. So even the least, now Jesus doesn't mean only the least, right? Like as if you're looking at a room full of Christians and the only one you can help is the weakest one, <laughs> right? Uh, or that even if you give a cup of cold water, you'll not lose your reward. It doesn't mean that God's got something really special about cups of cold water. So, you know, gosh, that guy's starving to death. I'm not going to get him a hamburger. I'm going to get him a cup of water because that's where my reward. Okay, that's misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. He's saying any good thing that you do, even down to the lowest, tiniest little act of giving him a cup of water, which is nothing at all, even that you won't lose your reward for. Okay, so we help the least all the way up, you know, and we help, uh, we give a cup of cold water all the way up. And that's the point. When we do these things, we do them unto Christ. Christ isn't just saying, well, when you pick out the very least, then you've done it to me. But if you pick out the second to the least, you missed me. I'm sorry. Right? Um, so it, Christ is indwelling his people. So as we help his people, um, we're helping him. Yeah, so in that judgment, the sheep and the goats are separated out ahead of time. And that means the believers and unbelievers are already separated out. And they've been separated out on the basis of faith or unbelief. Then to those who believe, Jesus does nothing but speak of the good works they've done. And they're sort of amazed by their, the good works that Jesus quotes and kind of says, when did we ever do these things, right? Now to the goats, those who have rejected him, Jesus mentions none of their good works, but only their sins. And you see, that's how the judgment goes. And all those places in Scripture, which there are multitude, that talk about us being judged by our works, that's the very thing. We are judged by our works, but we've already been separated on the basis of faith or not. You see, we're already a sheep or a goat. Then comes the judgment. Now, the judgment for sheep is he simply picks out the good things we've done. The judgment for goats is he simply picks out the bad things they've done. Which is everything, because as scripture teaches, apart from faith, you can do nothing to please him. Right? Apart from faith, everything is sin. Or all our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah teaches. So the goats choose to be judged without Jesus. And so all they have is the law. And so all that's seen is their evil deeds. When the lambs are judged, we are judged by Jesus by, that is, by the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. And so none of our sins are mentioned, but only our good deeds. Does that make sense? Okay, so that parable is a wonderful explanation. Um, and yes, uh, obviously James here has a very similar thought to Jesus, that uh, as the Father reaches out to the least, to the orphans and the widows, to those who cannot protect or help themselves, pure religion is to have the very same mind of the Father and to look at the world in the very same way. And then to keep oneself unstained from the world. <clears throat> you know, I, I think, again, unstained uh, doesn't have to do so much with leading a morally perfect life, although we would all like to do that. Um, as we read in John, 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Or as John says later, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who is the atoning sacrifice for us, and not for us only, but for the sins of the whole world. So in other words, I think that what he's saying by unstained from the world is he's not just saying you want to be really good and moral. That's true. Every Christian knows that. But I think the point is that when you do sin, you repent and you receive forgiveness and the sin washes off. So even if you fall into sin, even though you don't want to, you fall into sin, it doesn't stain you, it washes off. Now it stains you if you're impenitent. If you come to a place of impenitence and hardness of heart where you say, no, this is what I do, this is who I am, and I don't need to repent of this, and that's the way it is. In fact, God loves this. Uh, okay, now you're stained by the world, right? God himself can undo that stain by leading you to repentance, but... Um, the goal of pure religion, as James puts it, the goal of the Christian life is to care for those who are uh, weak and lowly and helpless and to live in a state of constant repentance, being washed from our stains. Make sense? I have a question. Yes. Regarding the good deeds, uh, Jesus says that no one is good, so how can... 
good deeds come out of us. Yes, good point. They have to be washed and cleansed, all of them, by the blood of Christ, and they are. And in that sense, we're, Christians are the only ones who do good deeds. That is, when we define a good deed uh, as if we were standing before the judgment seat of God. The, uh, you see, because remember what Jesus teaches about an evil tree? It can't produce good fruit. It's just going to produce evil fruit. Yeah. And a good tree can only produce good fruit. So the question is, what kind of tree are you? Now, what kind of tree are you? And you might say, well, let the record show that I guess I'm a bad tree because I got lots of bad fruit. And if I've got a single bad fruit, well, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit, so I guess I'm a bad tree. Well, that's true if I define for myself what a tree is, you see. But Jesus is the one who makes good trees and Jesus is the one who declares who is a good tree and who is not. Jesus is the one who declares who is righteous and who is not. Jesus imputes righteousness to us, right? He takes me a sinner and says, you are righteous in my sight because of what I've done for you on the cross. That's what he says to each of us. So even though we are sinners, even though we are bad trees, he looks and he says, you are a good tree because of what I did on the tree of my cross, right? Now, if you're a good tree, then you produce only what? good fruit. And you see, how can that be? Well, Jesus washes all of your fruit and makes it pure and acceptable in his sight. And that's why in Revelation 2, we're told um, uh, of the saints that their works follow them. And that means that every good thing you do is remembered by God, uh, is honored by God, is uh, blessed by God, and follows you into eternal life. So, you know, again, eternal life is not like we get a lobotomy. What did I do on earth? I don't remember. Um, you know, the good works that you've done follow you. They're rewarding. You see the fullness of what... And of course, do you, get, do you take credit for that? Paul says, I don't boast in anything except Christ and him crucified. So no, you don't take credit. And you realize how wonderful God is that he is in us both to... works in us both to will and to do, the scriptures say. In other words, who is doing the good works in and through us? God, to him be all glory. He does the good works in and through us, makes us willing participants in those good works, washes all our stains out, stains out of those good works that we've added, and then get this, blesses us and rewards us for those good works. I, if that's not the most outrageous grace, I, you know, it's as if I said to my son, do the dishes. And then I sat there with him and I made a game of doing the dishes and I ended up doing them all myself while he thought he helped. And then at the end I say, here's a great big candy bar for helping me out doing the dishes. I mean, that would be the best thing in the world, right? You'd say, that's great. And that's, that's very similar to what God does for us. He works in us both to will and to do, makes us participants in the good work, does it for us, cleanses out all our imperfections, um, the dishes we put away wrong, he straightens those out. And at the end of it all, he rewards us as if it was solely our good work. I mean, that's the blessing and the grace and the mercy that God pours out on us. So all of this is true before the judgment seat of Christ. And it's the way we speak properly as Christians about good works. And um, We can also, though, acknowledge, and I'm sorry I've got us one minute over now, but we can also acknowledge that in the civil sphere, in the left-hand kingdom, there are also good works, Okay. Good works that avail before the judgment seat of Christ? No, absolutely not. But in the civil way of speaking, how we relate in the world, good works? Yeah. If a Muslim guy, uh, if I go in to get my oil changed and a Muslim guy changes my oil and he does a good job so that my car doesn't grind to a halt and die and the engine blow up, right? Has he done a good thing? Yes. And that's, he's done a good work in the civil sphere, in the left-hand kingdom. Now, if he holds that good work up to God before his judgment seat and says, see, I did one good work, does that avail for anything? No. Then applies the word, your, even your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. You see, think about that phrase. It's still a righteous deed in the sense of the world. It's just a filthy rag in the sense of God's judgment seat. You know, so the soldier that jumps on a grenade and saves all his buddies, a good work? Absolutely. A work that saves him before God? No. Theologically still a filthy rag. Even though it is a righteous deed, it's a filthy rag. Does that make sense? Because the soldier was an unbeliever? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, yeah, in my analogy, right. In my, yeah, yeah. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. I'm just trying to say that in the civil sphere, unbelievers do righteous deeds uh, just as we do. It's just that when you take those before God, it's a filthy rag. And so that's where we have to have the blood of Jesus covering us, cleansing the filthy rag, right? Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Or they wash their robes, their filthy rags, in the blood of the Lamb, and they were white. That's Revelation 7, you know, that picture. But the civil works that we do, I always remember it, that the works we do or don't do and the things we do have a choice of in the world can also put us so far down the path that we're bound and hardened and, and make it harder to follow God and to hear his word. It uh, hurts us. The civil works we do that are bad. Oh, like when we sin civilly? Yeah, I don't mean good works. I mean bad works. Our civil choices are choices that we have here on earth that don't avail anything before the throne for our salvation. They can harm us. If, I mean, there's value in civil works alone, in their civil value, by harming us or, or making a, our hearts more open to God or more close to God as well. Right? Well, that's true. I mean, it grants our eyes to be opened at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the where the two kingdoms, the two spheres of left and right hand kingdom, actually overlap, yeah. um, because in our in our daily life, uh, we're to obey government as far as we can, as long as they don't tell us to do something against God's word, right? Um, so, if the government puts forward a speed limit, I'm to obey that speed limit. If I break God, if I break man's law, I mean, nowhere in the scriptures does it say, uh, "Thou shalt keep the speed limit," right? But it does say to honor and respect government. So if I honor and so so if I break that speed limit, um, not only am I breaking the law civilly, but I'm also sinning against government, against God's word, against the person that God, the government that God has set up for my good and for the good of the society. So a sin is a sin is a sin, all the way across the board. Um, but now if something like, uh, you know, if they forbid us to proclaim the gospel and they make it illegal to proclaim the gospel, well, then we obey God and not man. And so we break the law. But does that make us sinners? No, not at all. Right. So if we uh, so that that's another way of thinking about it. But you're right. If we uh, break the law and make a habit of breaking the law, we're actually sinning before God because we're showing disrespect to the government that he has set in place and sinning. And that, like all sin, uh, can lead us to a path of unbelief, ultimately. Doesn't it bind us more to a point that we can't climb out? I well, mean, it makes you weaker and weaker. In the scripture somewhere it said, you know, the woman who is bound so that she can't even, she's bound by her own sin. Well, sin, sin does have that effect. Uh, the older you get, the harder it is to get rid of sin the more it writes itself into you. And there's a habitus aspect of sin, a groove that gets worked into you where sin gets more and more comfortable and easier and easier. That's what you have to repent against and fight against. Um, that dynamic's there when you're talking about any kind of sin. There's a nature where sin... It's like uh, what God says to Cain, right? That sin is crouching at the door and it's waiting to overtake you and control you and enslave you. So our battle is constantly against sin, not to be enslaved by it. Um, but even then, that's a, that's a struggle, and it's a struggle we don't always, maybe even seldom win. Uh, Romans 7, where Paul says, the good that I want to do, I do not. Evil that I don't want to do, that I do. And he expresses the difficulty of waging that war. But still, he's fighting it, you know. I think the person that, the Christian that you worry about is the Christian who's given up on the fight. And they've just fully let sin have its way, and they're going to say, ah, Christ died for me, I'll do whatever I want, thank you very much. That person's in a in a dangerous spiritual place, because if their faith isn't hypocrisy already, it will be soon. Yeah, I'm thinking kind of about this, the same thing about like falling off that that balance of um, I'm forgiven, so I can you know abuse my liberty. Yeah, yeah. But even with a cold hard heart of not valuing God's forgiveness. You could say, yes, but think about the path you're going down. Think about how, what you're doing to mm -hmm. yourself, even on a civil, earthly... Oh, that's true. Yeah, you can you make know, that argument. Yeah. It's, it's good to think about it. It would be good to protect yourself, in, even in your hardness of heart. Absolutely. I'm saying, I don't, you know, I'll, I'll sin today and confess my sin tomorrow. Ha, ha. Yeah, yeah. I've heard people say that. But, but you have to think about it, too, and even in a shallow sense. 
So it's going to bind you. It's going to send you down a path. It, it hardens your heart. Yep. We, we were always told as kids if we stole anything and we got caught, we would be marched back to the store and we would have to tell the person we did it. You have to tell the clerk we did it and pay him back and uh, apologize and whatever else they had, you know, we'd have to do all that. Uh, what does that do? It teaches you to, res Not as a kid, to respect and honor. What's that? Not get caught. Yeah. Not get caught, yeah. <laughs> good, Liz, good, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Next week in James chapter two, how not to get caught. Yeah, um, but but the the idea is obviously yeah. If we, I mean, it, it's kind of a gateway thing. That's how it works. If we break the law in this one little place, we're inclined to do it this other little place, and so and pretty soon we do whatever we want. Yeah, we. So to nip that in the bud is a good thing. To try to live lawfully under government is a good thing. Um, the only time we're supposed to rebel against government is when it's going against the word of God. Um, and forcing us to do something against the word of God. Okay, thank you so much for coming. The Lord be with you. And also with you.